Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and super bitch, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm film scholar and sinister yet addictive card game, Noella Croy. <laughs> and we're here today to talk about Seeing Red, the 19th episode of season six. Seeing Red aired on May 7th, 2002 and was written by Stephen S. Knight and directed by Michael Gershman. Still Pretty is a fully spoiled, full-spectrum Buffy podcast, so if you haven't seen all of the show, go take care of that, and we'll get all excited with the tingly anticipation. And as this is fully spoiled and you've seen the episode, you know what we're going to be discussing today. Now is the time to decide if today is a day you want to listen to those topics. It's no failing in you if today is not that day. You can always save the episode for later. All right. Let's go on patrol. In Seeing Red, Willow and Tara wake up in bed blissful after a night of sexy canoodling. Willow's worried about Buffy after the events of the night before, and Willow suggests that something might have been going on with Spike and Buffy, and Tara spills the beans. Willow goes out into the hallway to find Buffy, and Dawn comes out, then sees Tara coming out of the bedroom, and... No, 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 I- I'm totally not here. You guys, you do whatever you want. Um, I'll go watch TV <laughs> downstairs really loud in the basement where I can't hear anything. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> I love you guys! At the geek lair, Buffy breaks in and finds the basement empty and booby-trapped. She escapes with a few books and papers and a sliced red leather jacket, and now she's really motivated to take these guys down. At the house, Tara and Willow flirt while working the problem, wondering if they should call Xander, who's unavailable, or Spike, who's no longer part of the team. Meanwhile, Anya's out at a bar trying to work up some vengeance business and work out her own issues. But we they say, I love you, and, and, and you think it's true. They say, oh, Anya, I want to be with you for the rest of my life, and, and you believe them. You believe they feel the same way about you, because that's the way love's supposed to be, right? At Spike's lair, Dawn comes by for a visit to say goodbye and tells a drunken Spike that his sleeping with Anya hurt Buffy. So if that was his goal, congratulations. Out in a demon's lair, the geek trio take down a demon with another plan, this time to obtain a couple of magic orbs that will make them super powerful. While Jonathan goes in to fetch them, Andrew and Warren plan their betrayal of Jonathan. Once Warren gets the orbs, which shoot power through him. Supposed to share. Oh, relax. I'll at least get a whirl. Soon as I'm done playing with him. Buffy goes to Xander's to talk, but he's still hurting from the night before and is more betrayed by her sleeping with Spike than Anya sleeping with Spike. They fight about who's made more mistakes, and Xander leaves. At the house, Willow cracks one of the trio's CDs, but gets distracted by the fact that there's a naked Tara in her bed and who can really blame the girl? I mean, come on. Xander goes to the bronze to drown his sorrows, and the geeks show up, ready to cause some trouble. Let's make some noise. Buffy patrols and hurts her back, so she goes back home to take a bath. Spike walks into the bathroom, insisting they need to talk. She tells him to leave. He doesn't. He apologizes for sleeping with Anya, then tells Buffy that she loves him. He insists that she admit it, and then pulls her to him while she hits him and yells at him to stop. He doesn't stop. He forces her down and climbs on top of her, telling her he's going to make her feel it. Finally, she throws him across the room, bouncing him off the wall. Because I stopped you. At the bronze, Jonathan tries to complain about Warren to Andrew, but Andrew shuts him down. 
Warren hits on a woman who's with a guy who bullied him in school, and when the guy starts a fight with him, Warren beats him up. Xander comes out of the bathroom and confronts Warren, who punches him across the bar. But before Warren can finish him off, Jonathan says they have to go in order to finish the night's plans. Xander returns to the house to find Buffy on the floor of the bathroom, recovering from the attack. Willow comes in with new information about the geeks, and everyone goes downstairs to figure out where the geeks are going to hit. Xander warns that Warren's gone almighty, and Buffy's glad. And I won't have to hold back. In his lair, Spike wrestles with what he's done when Clem shows up with a bucket of chicken. Spike struggles with his identity and blames the chip. He can't be a monster, and he can't be a man. Clem says that he should perk up. Things change. Spike agrees that they do, if you make them. At a theme park, Warren interrupts a couple of security guards delivering a truck full of money. Andrew and Jonathan watch as Buffy confronts Warren, and they fight. Warren survives a rock overpass falling on him, and he taunts her as they fight. Jonathan jumps on her back and tells her to smash the orbs. She does, and just as she's about to finish with him, he whips off his jacket and flies off in a jetpack, leaving them to go to jail. Meanwhile, Spike stops for a moment to look back at Sunnydale as he rides out on his motorcycle. Get nice and comfy, Slayer. I'll be back. And when I do, things are going to change. The next morning, Tara and Willow wake up and finally put on some clothes. In the backyard, Xander talks to Buffy and the two of them make up. Warren busts into the backyard, waving a gun and shouting misogynistic ranting at Buffy. He shoots randomly, hitting Buffy, and through the upstairs window, Tara, who notices the spray of red blood on Willow just before she drops to the ground, dead. All right, before we get into our overall response to seeing Red, we want to welcome a special guest who is with us today, Anya from Hallowed Ground Media. Anya is an academic scientist and podcaster who has been a huge Buffy fan since her roommate made her watch all seven seasons, plus Angel, during her senior year of college, substantially impacting her GPA, but that's fine. It was worth it. She podcasts about the stories she loves on Hallowed Ground Storycast, the His Dark Materials books and TV show and Measures of Truth, and the TV show American Gods on Shadows and Shamblers. All right, Anya, welcome. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, and I do want to just put in a short plug for the episode of Hallowed Ground Storycast where we actually had Lonnie on as a guest. <laughs> Uh, to talk about the 80s TV show Moonlighting, um, which is the show that first inspired her to become a writer. Um, so if you want to hear Lonnie talk about all of that, you should definitely check it out. <laughs> yes, definitely do. Uh, for those of you who remember Moonlighting, um, but it was, it was a lot of fun uh, talking about that with you and Alan. Um, so it's so great to have you with us and um, really great to have uh, somebody else here to kind of help us round out our discussion of what is probably the most difficult episode of Buffy to talk about. Yeah, this is probably the episode that I've spent the most time thinking about and arguing with people about. Um, and I don't think I've found anyone who feels the same way about this episode that I do. Um, so I'm really excited for the chance to dig into it with you, even if it is definitely not my favorite episode um, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a difficult episode. Um, okay, Noelle, yes. so let's go ahead and get into our overall responses to seeing Red. Yeah. Um, what do you think about this episode? Okay. I mean, we've said it a bunch already. It's a difficult episode. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it's an interesting episode that does some interesting things. Mm -hmm. 
But my response to it isn't particularly strong, which feels out of sync to me with how intense several moments in this episode are. So Mm -hmm. it's difficult for me in that way of like, I feel like I should feel more strongly about it than I do. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, and there, there is a very, very strong, like, fan response to this episode. This episode is incredibly divisive in the fandom. Um, it's, it's incredibly difficult for a lot of reasons. I think that there's one particular reason that we usually point to with seeing Red. Well, actually, two. <laughs> you know, there's two particular things. Like, there's big things that happen. There's, there's the rape scene with Spike and Buffy. And then there's, of course, Tara's death, which are huge moments in seeing Red. But it's almost shock it's almost that feeling of shock you know like after something huge has happened and you don't know how to deal with it and so we kind of process it through for the rest of the season um Anya what did you think about seeing red yeah everything that you guys have said so far makes sense um Mm -hmm. I think that the really intense parts of this episode come at the end and their impact isn't really felt as much in this episode as it is in future episodes or mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. maybe not all of the impact but a lot of the impact happens in future episodes um and so that's i think the fact that this is a fully spoiled podcast is going to make this conversation um much better and more full yeah. than it would be otherwise and so mm-hmm. i think it makes sense noel why you don't have as strong of feelings as you think you maybe would because i think the impact of this episode is even really felt through future episodes, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing is, like, I don't hate this episode. You know, I don't enjoy watching it. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, I think interesting things happen. It spawns a lot of important discussion. Um, I understand the people who hate it. And I also understand the people who don't hate it. Um, I think it's it's going to be really interesting as we go through and kind of like unpack all of the elements, you know, that are that are here to be talked about. Yeah, I I understand both sides for how people feel mm-hmm. about it too. Uh, as a survivor of sexual assault and rape, I have a lot mm-hmm. of big feelings about this episode. Yeah. Overall, I would say I appreciate what I think it's attempting to do in the long-term mm-hmm. arc of season six and the series as a whole. Um, but yeah, so I'm probably going to hang back a little bit while you guys start out talking about the other parts uh-huh. of the episode, and then I'll kind of jump in once we get there. All right. Well, Sounds absolutely good. jump in whenever you've got anything to say, because we've got a whole bunch of stuff. And I want to start out a little gently. <laughs> Noelle has some wonderful connections that they've seen between seeing Red and Psycho. So, uh, Noelle, can you go ahead and, and pull that together? Yeah. I don't know that this is love gentle it. per se. I mean, <laughs> it's it is a little bit of it's a little bit outside of the episode itself, though, which I think mm-hmm. maybe feels a little bit removed, but we're going to get a little bit. Yeah, we're going to get right into it, though, just in terms of like a the the rape scene is mm-hmm. a component of this, because right. there's a moment in that bathroom scene that sparked a cinematic memory for me mm-hmm. when Buffy grabs onto the shower curtain and ends up pulling it down as she hits the edge of the tub, the combined sound and camera angle really reminded me of the shower scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Mm -hmm. I brought up Hitchcock several times on this podcast um, because so many of the themes and tropes of American suspense cinema and television, while they did not originate with him, were introduced to moviegoing audiences through his films. 
Um, my favorite example of that, um, and one that is extremely relevant to Buffy, is the blonde woman in peril, right? right. That's not, mm-hmm. that did not originate with Hitchcock, but he did, um, he he perfected it, perhaps. <laughs> he, he used that over and over and over again. And it's one of the reasons that we continue to see it so much in American film and television still. Um mm-hmm. You don't need to have seen Psycho (laughs) to know the shower scene, I'm sure. About 45 minutes into a 109-minute film, Marion Crane, the protagonist, is stabbed to death in the shower of her motel room. And it's shocking for a lot of reasons, including the subject matter, Mm -hmm. the famous strings-only soundtrack that we've heard repeated and parodied pretty often, and Mm -hmm. the more than 50 edits that take place in this short scene. There are at least that many cuts in the bathroom scene in Seeing Red. If you start counting from the Mm -hmm. moment Spike puts his hands on Buffy's waist, it's over 40 edits. So it's easily more than 50 if you start counting cuts Mm -hmm. from the moment she enters the bathroom. Yeah. And in both cases, those rapid fire edits add to the sense of violence in the scene. It's visually jarring for an audience. It speeds up our experience of the action. Um, So if you Mm -hmm. feel a little frantic watching a scene like this, it's not just a you thing. Um, It's the subject matter, of course, but it's also Mm -hmm. the editing. It's almost tactile. And from a directorial standpoint, I think this is a really smart choice for seeing Red. Spike Mm -hmm. is talking about love, right? His dangerous, consuming definition of it. But the film language is speaking violence. I think that's really, really potent and really powerful. Yeah. And Spike's ability to distinguish between not just sex and violence, but love and violence. I think um, the the lines are not, you know, stark for him between these things. Well, and he's pretty clear about that in that scene, which is another. Yeah. It, it It's something that I think would add more. I almost want to say nuance to the scene, mm-hmm. except that, um, you know, the director and the editor take such a hard stance, I think, in terms of this being a violent act. The mm-hmm. the editing is tricky in that we're, as an audience, we're encouraged to consider both Buffy and Spike's position, which is mm-hmm. uncomfortable to even say because it starts to sound like you know, rape apology, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which is not at all, you know, that's that's not my standpoint at all. But I think that the editing... But do you think the text is doing some of that? Well, I think maybe that may be some of what bothers people about this episode. Yeah, I mean, we really are, even even in the scene itself, we really are invited into Spike's experience as well as Buffy's, which is mm-hmm. uncomfortable, Regardless of yeah. what regardless of what the show may be saying about sexual assault, being invited into that space in any way is uncomfortable. But mm-hmm. I think choosing to frame it in this very psycho shower scene way is just really, really smart. It feels mm-hmm. it feels very intentional. It feels um, it feels like the show taking a serious subject matter very seriously. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. And I also just appreciate, I mean, I love, I love Psycho. 
and I appreciate mm-hmm. any chance <laughs> I have to talk about it. And there's there are actually um, some other links to Psycho in particular in Seeing Red. Um, the amusement park mm-hmm. set is reminiscent of the base motel set. And the music in that scene is very psycho-like. It really brings to mind the score for me. Um, But I think another huge link between Seeing Red and Hitchcock's Psycho is Tara's death, which Mm -hmm. takes place in the same episode where Amber Benson appears in the opening credits for the first time. So Mm -hmm. put another way, Amber Benson is added to the opening credits as a way of adding to the shock of Tara's death, which is very Hitchcockian. That is such a Hitchcock (laughs) move. I mean, Psycho was shocking in large part because it killed its protagonist, Marion, with over an hour still left in the movie. And of Mm -hmm. course, this means that then the protagonist has to shift, right? Which the film does beautifully. And apparently I need to talk about Psycho and how story works because damn. Um, Oh, yeah. No, we'll have that discussion about killing your protagonist halfway through because it's bold. Yeah. It's bold. It's bullshit, but it's bold. Uh, well, so, see, yeah. I don't think it's bullshit, but, you know. All right. We're going to have that we'll argument have that, on we'll another have that podcast discussion. then. <laughs> right. We'll make a date. We'll have that discussion. Um, mm-hmm. But Tara's death comes on the heels of Willow's and her joyful naked reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And she isn't even the target of the violence that kills her. And that mm-hmm. feels like Hitchcockian relationship irony to me. I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see this in Psycho when Sam Marion's beau writes her a letter agreeing to marry her after the audience has watched the car with her dead body in the trunk sink into a swamp. Oh man, it's mm-hmm. like that level of fucking with your audience. <laughs> um, but there's more here than a clever twist on the audience's expectation regarding the relative safety of characters based on their position within the story. In both Psycho and Seeing Red, the blonde woman who is killed is also a lover. Mm -hmm. Both Marion and Tara spend the majority of their on-screen time in some state of undress, and both are shown in bed with their respective partners. These are women with sexual agency and expressed desire, and they get killed about it. Right. Well, which is a horror trope. I mean, that that women who have sex get killed. I mean, that tends to be more in your slasher, you know, films like Psycho. And so and Buffy is not as much slasher horror, you know, as it is monster horror. But I mean, still. Yeah. No, I don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I don't think the Buffy writers would see it that way. I don't believe mm-hmm. the show is deliberately punishing Tara for her uncomplicated sexual desire and queerness. But. As a lesbian, I feel that narrative trajectory extra harshly. It stings that that's how Tara exits. And I feel like we should say the name of that trope out loud, right? It's it's kill your gays. Yeah, the barrier (laughs) gays trope, the the dead lesbian trope. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of variations on this that come out of you know, homosexuals as deviants, and then they are mm-hmm. punished for their homosexuality by being killed. But there is, even even as we slowly move away from that in film and television, we still treat queer characters as disposable in ways that straight characters are not. Mm-hmm. And we have so many fewer 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, non-straight characters, definitely. Then, um, and and one of the things, one of the conversations that I've had a number of times um, in my classes with my students is that when you have, when you don't have a lot of stories, you know, featuring particular, you know, types of people, and then the ones that you do have the same thing happening all the time, that matters. It matters a great deal. You know, uh, you know, some people be like, oh, you know, straight people get killed too. Yes, but straight people also get to do everything else. Straight people are also the wide spectrum, you know, of, of the stories that get told. We don't have as many you know, um, queer characters on in a lot of these stories. And so to and especially at this time, because I think that Willow and Tara were the first lesbian network couple. Is that true? Or the first kiss, the first on screen kiss? They were the first mainstream depiction of the queer femme relationship. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? You know? Yeah. Yeah. On the uh, particularly there's there's something particularly harsh about it happening about about Tara dying in the same episode where they are so joyfully, gleefully in bed together for most of the episode. Mm -hmm. It really feels like a connect the dots kind of moment for me of like this kind of queer femme happiness leads to death and destruction, you know, and mm-hmm. ultimately like some real, some real serious fuck off destruction um, with mm-hmm. Willow. So, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. And it's a trope because it happens over and over and over again. This isn't the only instance where we see that happening, yeah. you know, and that becomes, and that becomes really, really difficult. So I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry <laughs> that they did that. And that sucks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's it's maybe it's maybe getting better with our queer representation. Maybe um, slowly as the more people, the more diversity we have above the line, the better the stories we get. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's just how it goes. Well, and I think, too, television is one of the slowest mediums in terms of reacting to culture just because mm-hmm. It's so expensive um, and it takes so long to, you know, green light things for things to be in development. Um, It's a big investment to make a season of a TV show um, compared to movies where, you know, you can make a whole movie in a couple months Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. from just a production standpoint or from writing even um, like books as a medium. Um, Yeah. So I think... I don't know, as someone who has recently been kind of exploring um, my sexual and gender identities through Mm -hmm. media um, in a way that I haven't before, I found that there's just so much better stuff out there in books Mm -hmm. because I think they're cheaper to make and they rely on fewer people to produce. Yeah. Um, And so TV is like a lagging indicator of where we are as a culture, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Well, television and and because of the heavy, heavy lift that is a season of television, it has more gatekeepers. Most of those gatekeepers tend to be wealthy, straight, cishet, white men. Right. You know, so 
their perspective on things, what they will green light, what they won't, what they expect. Um, there are a lot of like one of the things that comes to mind is Aaron Sorkin talks about, and this is in the nineties making of a few good men in which a, a producer said to him, um, if he doesn't sleep with Demi Moore's character, then why is she a woman? Uh, right? Like, yeah. 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 So I, that kind of thing is the kind of question that gets asked in rooms like that quite a bit, even now, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely upsetting. And as long as we're already upset and angry, let's go ahead and talk about the rape scene. Um, This moment in Spike's character development is a difficult point for a lot of people. Um, So we're going to sit here. We're going to hang out for a little bit. We're going to turn over. We're going to talk about it. Um, As we do, um, I ask that anyone listening understand that we are speaking solely for ourselves and our perspectives. Um, If you see something different, you see something different, and that's okay. Um, This scene tends to inspire very passionate and often angry responses in people. Um, But first, I'd like to lay down a few points upon which... I believe, I think at least the three of us are in agreement and definitely let me know if you would disagree with anything. Um, For me, uh, one of the big things is the fact that Spike stopped eventually does not make it okay or lessen the violation. Um, She stopped him. Mm -hmm. She threw him across the room and that was what gave him the moment to wake up. Um, Continuing something like this after being told no is the offense, how long it lasts, that if it eventually ends before the perpetrator comes to orgasm is not relevant because rape is an abuse of power. It is not about sex. Also, our cultural idea that sex has only actually happened once there's been penetration or orgasm is heteronormative and reductive. That's another discussion entirely. So those are the arguments that I will not hear about this. <laughs> so right? that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I actually do want to not necessarily push well maybe push back on one point okay Mm -hmm. so there is this idea that rape is about power and not sex Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think that that is a really important idea Mm -hmm. because in many cases that is true yeah but i think that based on my personal experience that is not always in fact true okay i Mm -hmm. think um there are a lot of people out there where the violation is the point. Mm -hmm. And then I think there are other people where the violation is not the point. They would just as well, or perhaps even prefer a -hmm. consensual encounter. Yeah. It's just that they don't care if it's not, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. that the point of the rape is the abuse of power it's Mm -hmm. just that they don't care okay and so i I think that really influences my read on this scene okay um yeah i definitely understand that i think that the um the option to not care comes down to the power to do what you want regardless of whether the other person cares so i kind of do still see them uh, i still see them locked in a power dynamic but i understand what you're saying or yeah or i guess Mm -hmm. maybe i should say yeah yeah i think we're kind of i think we're it's in a nuanced space right like Mm -hmm. rape always involves an an abuse of power and there is Mm -hmm. always that element to it but whether yes. that is like the motivating factor or not, I think yes. can vary. I think absolutely you're right. Absolutely, I agree. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes when people use that phrase, 
it can be misinterpreted right. to say mm-hmm. more than that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. No, I understand that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's really difficult too when you're talking about rape within the context of an established relationship mm-hmm. or a, mm-hmm. an, even an acquaintance relationship. I, I feel like certainly in our stories, it seems mm-hmm. like sex and the desire for sex or the desire for some sort of physical connection factors into how the story talks about rape if that makes sense like Mm -hmm. like the reason the reason rape shows up in the story is because sex or sexuality or quote-unquote romance or love or something something sex adjacent has been part of Mm -hmm. this dynamic and then so then when violence enters the picture it's sexual violence. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But there is that the fact that um, that somebody can continue to perpetrate despite the no, you know, without considering that um, does have does create kind of a power dynamic that I find to be ever present in these and I cannot get out of my head. And as I look at Spike, and I do think like Noelle earlier, you were saying that some of the text does seem to show Spike's perspective on this, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, that does seem to have some sympathy for for what he's doing. Um, and I think that textually we do have a little bit of that. We definitely see his struggle with it afterward. You know, in a, in a sympathetic light, right? Yeah. Clem is there, you know, patting him on the back. It'll be okay. You can change things. I mean, Clem, of course, I don't think knows what has happened. Poor Clem. Clem has no idea. Poor Clem. He's just, he just wanted to have some hot wings and watch some TV, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's tricky. It is tricky. And in this episode in particular, we see more of Spike's aftermath. Than we do of Buffy. Yeah. We see Spike before and we see Spike after. And we really don't yeah. spend that much time with Buffy, which I find kind of troubling. More than yeah, kind the trauma of erasure from this incident for Buffy is one of the things that I have the biggest problem with um, is that we do not follow the arc of her recovery from this experience very well at all. And we definitely focus on. Spike's identity crisis, which, by the way, is one of the things I love. I'll talk about that later. Um, his identity crisis, his his redemption arc, all of that stuff, um, I find uh, I find really, really interesting and crunchy from a narrative perspective. But the fact that we um, it feels like we almost further victimize Buffy by not living through that that trauma with her from her perspective what happens is xander comes and finds her and then willow says hey we've got some work to do and buffy goes into work mode um she doesn't tell them what happened that's such an interesting moment too because xander comes Mm -hmm. in and notices xander knows that something has happened Mm -hmm. and buffy says i I forget how xander phrases it but basically asks if spike hurt her and buffy says he tried to And then and there's a little bit of an understanding between them. Mm -hmm. Um, We get we actually get some really nice Buffy and Xander in this episode. And this is beat two Mm -hmm. of Buffy and Xander. So he comes in. He sees that something has happened. He acknowledges that she's been hurt. Then 
Willow and Tara come in and Buffy hides the bruise yes. and snaps into work mode. So it's not that Willow doesn't notice or doesn't see what's going on. Um, I mean, there's a there's a subtle theme in this episode yeah. of Willow not seeing what's going on. But mm-hmm. Buffy tells Xander, not quite tells him, but tells Xander, but then hides from Willow. And I think that that's a really interesting moment as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, so Anya, what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I think you guys have brought up some really important points. And I think you're spot on with the fact that um, both in this episode and in the episodes that follow and into season seven, mm-hmm. the impact of this rape or attempted rape, as I think it's usually called in the fandom, that's a semantic oh, conversation sh- that I think we should have, but maybe after I finish this thought. Oh, sure. um, yeah, I think that to me, this scene and this or like the long-term plot line and spike's redemption Mm -hmm. arc reads to me like wish fulfillment written by a rape survivor okay Mm -hmm. and so i'll make this argument um more in depth as we go um but Mm -hmm. i think that perhaps part of the reason why we see so much more from spike's perspective than we do from buffy's Mm -hmm. is because it is that fantasy wish fulfillment um, perspective mm-hmm. of what I wish my perpetrator had done mm, and had yeah. reacted to what they had done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why it shies away from Buffy is because it's too close and it's too personal. Mm-hmm. And I think there is so much policing of that goes on in terms of the way that victims of rape Mm -hmm. and sexual assault respond to their attacks. Mm -hmm. And so by, by not giving us Buffy's response in a lot of detail, in a way it kind of lets survivors insert themselves into the story Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. um, it's like more of a blank slate. And I think it kind of, um, it doesn't let the audience judge her as much for her reaction. And it kind of gives Mm -hmm. the character almost some privacy for that. And I, I totally understand people who think that that is not the best decision, Mm -hmm. but I understand why they made that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and like for me personally, one of the hardest parts of um, the first time that I was assaulted was how people reacted to, to my reaction. Yeah. And like said things like, well, you don't seem that bothered by it. So mm-hmm. why are you making such a big deal out of this? Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, if you can hold yourself together in some way it must not have impacted you right and and i just think there's people have a lot of expectations for how they want people to respond to this Mm -hmm. and so you know i don't know i just have complicated feelings like obviously criticizing a real life person based on their real life experience is very different than criticizing 
a written character's experience that someone else came up with, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But I do think that when people say, I don't think Buffy responded correctly to her attack, and, like, I think she should have looked more traumatic, like, Mm -hmm. that rubs me the wrong way because that... Oh, for sure. Literal things that people said to me. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Anya, I, I love your point about the way that it's handled visually and narratively giving her privacy for her reaction not just you know in a in a we're opening this space for people watching for people watching to you know either insert themselves into this moment and you know move through something or re-experience something in a way that like creates that space for them to process without a bunch of drama about how she is responding um and also just as a as a i mean what that's such a powerful tool of fiction creating Mm -hmm. space around difficult or meaningful moments in a person's life and i just i just love that i love i love that that's present in fiction and I'm sorry, I'm so sorry that that was not present in reality for you. Mm-hmm. But I love that read. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. And I guess to go a little bit more in depth in what I mean by uh, the wish fulfillment mm-hmm. side of things, to me, you know, Lonnie always says that, right, the meaning of a story comes from how it ends. And so I think to really talk about what the scene means, we have to talk not just about what's in this episode, but in where it goes, right? And so Mm -hmm. this sets off Spike's long redemption arc and makes him, like, really rethink his whole identity, everything about himself. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, you know, I mean, I think we can argue whether it's sufficient or not, but he really tries to atone in a big mm-hmm. way, you know, whether he's successful or not, he at least is trying. Yeah. And in my experience, that's not something that rapists do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have confronted yeah. <laughs> some of the people who have committed violence against me in that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have never been satisfied with the response, we'll just say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Never even a glimmer that they understand the magnitude of what they did. Right. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it reads as if that there's there's an, ep- an element of wish fulfillment here that it's like, okay, this is some uh, a type of violence that so many women experience and so mm-hmm. many people, you know, of yeah. all genders experience. And so to have a depiction where the perpetrator, you know, in order to commit that act, mm-hmm. you ha- there has to be some level of, of, like, confusion or not being necessarily aware of what's going on. Well, again, and this is kind of where it goes into, are you, 
are you committing that act of sexual violence because you need the sexual violence or because you just don't care? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like somehow don't comprehend it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, and especially when the perpetrator is someone that you know and someone that you have a relationship with and someone that you trust, like not a stranger. I think it's, it's really hard to reconcile that someone that you trusted and that you cared about did that to you. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so in this, I guess in the same way, right, that like Buffy and Angel in season two is a metaphor for what happens when you have a boyfriend and um, and like things are going great. And then as soon as you have sex, it's like a a switch flips and Mm -hmm. it's a completely different person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's like, well, how do you reconcile that? Right. And so the show does that by turning it into a metaphor and saying that, Mm -hmm. okay, well, what happened is he lost he lost his soul. He's literally a different person Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when, you know, the reality of that situation is that probably your perception was wrong. (laughs) Right. And (laughs) you just didn't really know what that person what that person Mm -hmm. truly was to begin with. I think we you can do some interesting things if you try and put the Buffy Spike relationship in that same metaphorical space. It doesn't mm-hmm. quite work as well because the rape itself, right, is not a metaphor. It's literal. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some sort of metaphorical packaging around it that's functioning in a similar way mm-hmm. where it's like in order to reconcile the fact that somebody who you had that relationship with and trusted on some level mm-hmm. could do that to you. It has to be confusion and that they don't really know that that hard line, that that no meant no. Mm -hmm. And that then there has to be some sort of moment after the fact where they really come to grips with the horror of what they did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that, again, I mean, so it is a little bit in metaphorical space, right? Because Spike also doesn't have a soul. Right. So there is some sort of, you know, fundamental flaw for why he was able to do that and then that then gets fixed. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. Like I haven't I haven't quite written the essay to like <laughs> na- completely yeah. nail this down, but I think you can kind mm-hmm. of see the broad strokes of of what I'm trying to say and how for me watching Spike's arc on screen and like the horror that he goes through in the aftermath of realizing what he does, like that look on his face mm-hmm. when he yeah. when it hits him what he's doing to her in that scene that is what i wish i had seen on my attackers Mm -hmm. faces yeah Mm -hmm. and i did not see yeah yeah and and i think that 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 is um that there's an element of of wish fulfillment and kind of like literalizing some kind of metaphor there Mm -hmm. yeah and and it it does give a sense of catharsis right and like that's why we go to fiction yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a role of fiction um, is, is a big part of um, one of the things I talk about is earning the stories that you tell, you know, mm-hmm. that if you tell a story about rape that you need to earn it by processing through all of that trauma. Um, and a lot of stories will use this kind of thing as sort of for its shock value. Yeah. And not follow through. And we do kind of need that follow through. And the change in perspective, 
right? Mm -hmm. Anya, as you were talking and I'm reflecting on, you know, I mentioned how this, this scene in the bathroom, this rape scene is sandwiched between Spike in his crypt, you know, thinking about love and why he did what he did. And Dawn comes in and is like, well, if you loved her and wanted to hurt her, congratulations. And then we see him back Mm -hmm. in his crypt afterwards where he's struggling with his identity, but also what he did. Like he's, instead of Buffy getting flashbacks to what happened, we see Spike having flashbacks Mm -hmm. to what happened. He is... He is having a change of perspective and seeing what he did in a different light. And that is so powerful and so unusual, not just in, mm-hmm. in life, you know, in, in life, certainly, um, you know, as you've both said, but also in fiction, we don't mm-hmm. see perpetrators considering what happened and why they yeah. did what they did or see or seeing it from another perspective and that's that's huge Mm -hmm. yeah and I think you know some of the most common criticisms in the fandom about this episode and about you know this story arc is that it's not realistic Mm -hmm. and I that's not the point to me right like yeah (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like, what makes this powerful is that it's not realistic. Right. Yes. Fiction is not answerable to reality. And this is exactly why. Mm-hmm. Because we need our fiction to do something our reality cannot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the other most common criticisms is just that, like, this is a line that you can't cross. And mm-hmm. that, like, if you do this thing... There is no possibility for redemption. Mm. Yeah. And and that like that the from this perspective, the the story writers had two options, right? They could Mm -hmm. if they wanted to redeem Spike, they could not have him rape Buffy Mm -hmm. or they could have him rape Buffy and not try to redeem him. That those two things are somehow completely in contradiction with each other. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. And that is something that I just, like, fundamentally disagree with. Like, I think that there Mm -hmm. is very little that is completely irredeemable. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I think there's some irredeemable people out there. Don't get me wrong. But I think that there there are very few actions that are truly irredeemable, right? Like, there are people who commit murder Mm -hmm. who, you know, go to prison for decades and... And, you know, like, there's so much talk that's going on right now about the criminal justice system and how fucked up it is along a mm-hmm. lot of dimensions. I'm not even going to get into the race side of things, but just yeah. the the general idea that people who commit crimes are irredeemable monsters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who yeah. cannot be rehabilitated and need to be punished and locked away forever, I think is at a root of a lot of a lot of fucked up stuff in our society Um, absolutely and that obviously I was super traumatized by you know some of the experiences that I've had um do I think that the people who did those things to me are irredeemable Mm -hmm. no do I think that our society is set up for them to be forced to really grapple with what they've done 
no. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know, like, yeah, I don't I don't think they have been redeemed. I don't forgive them, but I don't think it's impossible. I think that, you know, in other circumstances, they have the capacity to be redeemed. And if they did that work, then I would forgive them. If they went and got their souls, right? Which is the argument that we essentially come back to when we talk about Spike. And this is the argument that that Noelle and I are going to be running through for all of season seven when we get there. You know, I mean, redemption isn't just handed out like candy. It's earned, right? And so Mm -hmm. here we have Spike working to earn that redemption via, you know, getting of his soul. And when he comes back in season seven, he has that moment where he says, I went and got my soul to make it better. And then once I had my soul, realized that I couldn't, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. And that I think is yeah. a really powerful part of that too, is that it's not, he's not being redeemed so that he can have Buffy, you know, or so yeah. that he can get her back or so that she will love him. Yeah. He's going after his redemption so that he can know what he's done and hold himself accountable. A, a redemption comes from, you know, acknowledgement, apology and accountability. Um, and you have to run through those. Um, but but getting back to, you know, your perspective on this, Anya, which I really appreciate is like the different levels of wish fulfillment that do happen, you know, in this episode for the, um, you know, for people who have had this experience. And I do believe that Marty Noxon, who was running the the show during this season, um, it has come out as a survivor of sexual assault. Um, so I, I'm not surprised. Also, like lots of people have that experience and don't ever come out and mm-hmm. don't ever talk about it, but sometimes write things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a really interesting perspective and read on uh, on this particular scene. Yeah. And as we move forward with, you know, the the rest of season six and then through season seven, I really want to consider Anya's point about Spike versus Angel in the metaphorical sense. You know, how much of Mm -hmm. this, how much of this is metaphor? How can we view this through the lens of metaphor, Um, especially with this perspective of, you know, a redemption arc for a perpetrator who has seen what he's done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, it's, it's really interesting. It's definitely a lot to, uh, to think about and to consider a lot of the arguments about this get into, you know, can you forgive Spike? Honestly, a lot of the Spike, you know, argument stemming from this episode comes down to this uh, is Spike or Angel better in the fandom that's a lot where this comes in. And I find that to be so pointless, like a pointless argument of whether Spike is better than Angel. Um, That is not the point at all. Um, But I do like, I like that Spike knows what he's done. I like that Spike um, goes out and gets his soul as a, as a result of that. Uh, Some of the ways in which we set that up at the end of season six, I don't particularly care for because I feel like we're being deliberately misled, but anyway, I'll forgive it because I like the eventual, where the eventual arc goes. I am with you Um, 100% on that. I know I'm not going to be a guest on that episode. So I just want to say like, yes, yes. total bullshit. (laughs) The the misleading nonsense is definitely something that I, I don't 
particularly care for. Um, all right. Is there, are we, are we feeling good to move on? Is there anything else that we missed in this part of the discussion that we want to hit on? Um, I just want to make two kind of small points that we touched on a little bit earlier, um, but maybe like didn't quite nail mm-hmm. down with the clarity um, mm-hmm. that I wanted. Um, and I just want to say that like, I mean, rape is, is, is complicated, but I've been kind of putting it into two general bins, right? Of like mm-hmm. rape motivated by that power imbalance, um, yes. which is like, I mean, well, okay, maybe we, this is actually deeper than I had thought. Um, Cause we haven't, we haven't even touched on like BDSM and kink. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, like rape fantasies, and mm-hmm. and consensual non-consent is a thing that yes. people practice and that, you know, talking about how to do that safely and responsibly is kind of beyond the scope of this um, podcast, I think. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are there are people who get turned on by violating consent mm-hmm. and some people can manage that in a healthy way that builds consent into it. Mm-hmm. And some people do not. And yeah, they... Yeah inflict violence and pain on others um and so okay so then right so we have sort of like rape that's motivated from that side Mm -hmm. and then rape that i think is motivated just from like i want sex and i don't care if you don't want it right Mm -hmm. um and and so while we're categorizing these things by intent and i think intent does matter mm-hmm. right because i think there's a lot more room for redemption in kind of that second box than in the first mm-hmm. box sure. where you're like yes yeah you're absolutely harming people but the harm is not the point mm-hmm. intent is obviously not magic it is not the main thing that matters what matters is the harm that you perpetrate and i think based on this conversation it's it's clear that that's how all of us feel yeah but i just wanted to say that super clearly that thank you um Mm -hmm. just the fact that you did not intend to hurt somebody does not change the fact that you did and both of my attackers i feel like fall into that second bin Mm -hmm. where the what they were looking for was a consensual experience but they did not care that that was not going to happen so they right or they were Mm -hmm. not you know aware enough for whatever reason Mm -hmm. to understand that that wasn't happening and um and so that you know it just it makes things complicated mm-hmm. um well especially because this story does focus so much more on spike's experience of it than buffy's yeah you know um so that is kind of um the one thing one of the things that i wanted to just state really clearly mm-hmm. or really fuzzily um <laughs> No, that was great. It's it's intent. Intent is important, but it's not as important as impact. Yes, yes. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like how that applies to rape is complicated, but the principle itself, I think, is crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is I just wanted to give you guys the space to talk about why you have been calling this scene the rape scene. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the fandom, I think it is called the attempted rape scene by most people. And yeah. I'm assuming that you have made that choice very deliberately and thoughtfully. And 
I have, you know, my own thoughts about why that might be the case, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, um, I actually have looked at this from both perspectives and the attempted rape versus the rape scene, I think, speaks to um, the idea that he stopped. Right. And that and that what makes rape rape is if the perpetrator comes to orgasm or if the perpetrator, um, you know, finishes whatever it was that they were starting or that that what is the finish of that. So for me, myself personally, in that experience, the fact that someone stops or is stopped does not is not a mitigating factor in actually what happened, or at least in, in my personal experience. So when I call it an attempted rape, I feel like I'm apologizing for Spike. Mm. Um, and so that makes me feel, I feel like I'm mitigating what he's done. And considering the fact that I do like where he goes, that I do like his redemption arc, that I do like that he goes and gets his soul. Um, I want to be very, very clear that in no way am I saying that what he did was not bad. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to like mitigate that. Um, so I mean, Noelle, how do you feel about that? It's interesting. I call it the rape scene because of what I discussed at the, the opening of the show, the way it's shot, the way we experience mm -hmm. it as viewers, the way it's positioned within the visual storytelling, it is a violation and yeah. there's no... There's no it was going to be a violation and then it didn't happen, which is what the, the word attempted yes. suggests to me. Like what we see, what we see as viewers, what we experience as viewers is a violation in the same way that there are plenty of horror movies that show us, you know, they'll show us something without really showing it. I mean, Psycho does it wonderfully mm -hmm. um texas chainsaw massacre does it wonderfully there's there's gore and violence that exists on screen without existing on screen we see it all the time in film and television with nudity implied nudity is still nudity because we the audience experience it as nudity mm -hmm. so to me this is a rape scene because we the audience experience it as a rape scene mm -hmm. there's no kind of sorta about it for me yeah um mm -hmm. and that's why i choose to refer to it that way those are great great answers to that question and i guess it just it makes me think about or it kind of puts into perspective some thoughts that i've had about my experiences mm -hmm. right like again if we're putting things into bins right of like right. what's capital r rape what's sexual assault right that is a necessity based on essentially a, a legal system. Yeah, right? those are legal yeah. terms is my understanding, mm -hmm. right? Right. And so, you know, what Spike does to Buffy in this episode is not legally rape, right? Right. But it super is metaphorical rape and emotional, you know, it is that violation. Yes. And I think, I think that there is kind of... Be you know, because of the way the legal system is set up with, like, specific categories of behavior that are very explicitly defined, right, and ranked explicitly in terms of how bad they are based yeah. on what the punishments for each category are, right? It creates this hierarchy of badness. 
mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for sexual violence that doesn't translate very well to the real world and how we experience those types of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So like in, in my first attack, um, legally it was sexual assault. It was not rape. Mm-hmm. Um, my second attack was legally rape. Mm-hmm. You know, but because of the different factors, that first one was so much more traumatic to me yeah. and felt like so much more of a violation than the second one, even though the first one was sexual assault and the second one was rape. Mm-hmm. And therefore, legally speaking, the first one was, quote unquote, not as bad mm-hmm. as yeah. the second one. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So all of that just go is to say that I, I completely agree with you and and i might have a segue to our next section um <laughs> yes, to go to see, see where this goes um yes. at, at so the next section is intoxication um right and at the intersection of of sexual assault and intoxication um i just want to say something because this really um helped me when i was first processing um some of of my experiences Mm-hmm. That um, the way that our society deals with intoxication and sexual assault and how those two things yeah. work together, it's such mm-hmm. a contradiction that somehow if the victim is intoxicated, it makes it their fault for mm-hmm. getting drunk or mm-hmm. high or whatever. Yeah. And if the perpetrator is intoxicated, it makes it less their fault. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And that mm-hmm. is complete bullshit. And um and that is if there is like, you know, one message about rape and sexual assault that I wish that we could unlearn as a culture that I think is not on people's radar, that would be it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um Yeah. And so Absolutely. with that alcohol yeah Yeah, let's move into our discussion and we're gonna uh, try to gently move out of that um incredibly intense discussion so uh thank you anya very much for sharing so deeply of your personal experience so in order to illuminate this for uh for us and with us and i really appreciate you doing that and uh, this is not a goodbye it's just a notice of appreciation right now before we move on into things that are going to be inevitably more lighthearted um <laughs> perhaps, perhaps perhaps not <laughs> well, until, um, until we get to the other truly truly right. horrifying area of this uh of oh, this episode God. but in the meantime we could talk a little bit about uh about intoxication yeah mm-hmm. well this is one of those things in this episode that i didn't quite know what to do with there's a mm-hmm. lot of drinking and implied drinking yeah. in this episode um we see Anya at a bar in what is clearly the morning, mm-hmm. alternately projecting on and talking at a woman whose gross fat phobia makes her totally unsympathetic to me. Yes. But that's mm-hmm. another thing. Um, you know, and then when Dawn swings by Spike's crypt on her way to Janice's, Spike is pouring booze into a glass of blood. I guess. Or is that just a giant glass of whiskey? <laughs> Either way. Either way, peak Spike. Uh, very on brand, yes. And also suggests that perhaps he is intoxicated when he yep. goes to talk to Buffy, which if we needed to further complicate that scene, uh, maybe we just did. Mm-hmm. 
And then we see yeah. Buffy go to Xander's apartment and he's drinking and he offers her a drink and she refuses because, again, it's the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then shortly afterwards, we see Xander at a bar or is that the bronze? I think this... it's the bronze. Yeah. OK, I mm-hmm. was not totally clear on place mm-hmm. in that scene where he does a little bit of mirroring of Anya earlier where this woman is trying mm-hmm. to connect with him and he's just he's not here for it. Yeah. Um, and then finally, after we have the scene with Spike and Buffy in the bathroom, we go we go to the bronze again. But this time we're with the trio and Andrew has his enormous fruity drink. Right. And further, we're doing all kinds of like interesting and problematic queer stuff with Andrew in this mm-hmm. episode that I oh, yeah. don't have in my notes because I just. I, I have it in mine. It's not. It's not great yeah, it's just it's just andrew's internalized homophobia being a joke yeah it's, i mean yeah i'll get into i mean i'll get into some of that when i get mm-hmm. into talking about the trio but yeah. i want to say something about intoxication and emotions both in mm-hmm. the drinking to drown the emotions kind of way and also in the strong emotions can feel like being under the influence of a substance kind of way mm-hmm. because this feels really deliberate but yeah. I'm not 100% sure what to do with it in this episode. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I I want there to be more to it than just everyone is really going through it and alcohol is a legal, widely available, relatively inexpensive way to shut your brain the fuck up mm-hmm. um, because it's literal brain poison. But right. I don't know. So we have this we have this like intoxication alcohol sort of through line, but I don't know that it is more meaningful than what I've just laid out. No, I think that you want it to be metaphor because you um, kind of just want more from that than just everybody's drinking. (laughs) Well, because you crave metaphor because the Buffy is a metaphor delivery machine for the most part. And then when Buffy gets literal, it always feels a little bit weird. Um, And to me, this feels like it's, just I mean, I, you know, somebody else may read something else into it. But what I see is just that we are having a lot of people drinking and drinking is the shorthand for I am deeply, deeply look at me deeply suffer. I am drinking. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that I think it's just shorthand. I think it's more shorthand, less metaphor. I mean, personally, that's God what damn I see. It. Yeah. But I want more metaphor. I, oh, like, well, I want... How about the orbs? Oh, my God. <laughs> orbs. <laughs> Why did it have to be orbs? Yeah, I mean, this is metaphor that's not even trying to be metaphor. Well, and that's the problem, right? Yeah. Andrew says, I thought they were supposed to make us all huge and veiny. Are you sure they're working right? And I'm like, oh, yeah. my God. Like, it's so I just roll my eyes so hard because they're not even being kind of subtle about this. Well, and I find it really interesting that in a season that is focused on entitlement and unearned power and the essential weakness and fragility that inspire those qualities in people we use as a source of incredible power to very fragile, easily smashed testicles. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so not subtle and I'm just annoyed with it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, last time on the podcast, previously on Still Pretty, Kelly Jones observed brilliantly that the trio don't function well as antagonists because there's no story space for them among Slayer rules and Slayer power. 
Mm-hmm. Buffy can't use her Slayer abilities on the trio because they're human. There's no yeah. way to fight them within the rules we've established for how Slayers work. Mm-hmm. So it's narratively vexing. Yes. But this episode also drives home why I don't like the trio as antagonists. I am mm-hmm. all for the villain was toxic masculinity all along, but the trio's toxicity is way too jokey. Yeah. They're dangerous because they're, quote unquote, playing at being men, as Katrina says. But it's all framed as funny and kind of eye-rolly. And I'm in on it because I'm like, oh, of course they're orbs. Of course they're orbs. Yes. Um, I I find uh, this is where, like, again, I want the metaphor. This is a metaphor that we're actually working that hard for. Um, and it's also, it plays into this whole, the trio, the trio fails in, in a lot of the ways in which season six in general fails is that we're moving out of metaphor and into literal reality. And while we're in this sort of shifty space in between, it just all feels wrong. Even when we're using metaphor with the trio, it feels wrong. Um, And it's the same thing when we get up to guns, you know, in Buffy. Mm -hmm. Like here, once again, we have another gun. These things, never useful, right? That's one of Buffy's classic Mm -hmm. responses to guns. I think the only time that she actually used a gun effectively was in season two with the judge, the rocket launcher. And ever since, every time we see guns, it's always unearned power and Buffy throws them aside with the initiative. She threw them aside. Um, And she fought by hand with her earned power, you know, the power that she works with and trains for all the time. Um, And so when we talk about that in terms of here are these three guys in constant pursuit of unearned power through various venues, some of which are guns, but a lot of which are not. It's still the same thing. It's still stolen power. Um, and, And the misogyny in it, which is so literally expressed, um, also becomes disturbing because I, it, this is a, a, a story in which I kind of expect my reality to be couched in enough metaphor that I can experience it without experiencing it. You know, but that mm-hmm. misogyny, every time I, I feel it deeply, every time it raises its head, I feel that shock of very real fear that I have felt every time I've seen it in the real world. Um, and, and especially when it's been directed at me personally. Um, and so all of that together mixed with the trio, I think that, that Dr. Jones is absolutely right. All right. So before we get into the the rest of the misery that is in in seeing red, um, can we have a few moments just to enjoy Tara and Willow together? Yes, please. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) I love Tara and Willow in this. I loved the can we just skip it speech at the end of Entropy. Um, I love them together. I love them happy and whole again. Um, you know, with the the caveat that, of course, all relationships require a lot of very difficult discussions and you cannot just skip it. But I'm glad that we just skipped it for the the 
purpose of the fiction um, that we didn't live through it, that they were able to kiss and just make up and be together. I love Dawn's squee of delight when she sees them together. Yes. I love, okay, we'll stop. Oh, you'd better not from Dawn. I love that. <laughs> um, and this happens right before the unbelievable tragedy that we will talk about uh, as uh, as we inspire the old joke, Joss Whedon, George R. R. Martin, and Stephen Moffat walk into a bar and your favorite character dies. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I've already talked about it. I hate mm-hmm. that Tara's death yes. comes, you know, right after mm-hmm. this wonderful episode of the of Tara and Willow being reunited without the magic, except of mm-hmm. course there was plenty of magic. Like it's just mm-hmm. it's so lovely to see them together. And I love Dawn being the Tara and Willow cheerleader. Oh, it's just the best. I know. It's so great. I loved it. It's really fun to see. Um, okay, so I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about Buffy, too, because I, I've noticed something when I'm making my notes, uh, per, mostly during season six. Um, there's something weird about Buffy um, in season six, and it's that nothing seems to be about her. She is not really active in her stories. I mean, she has sex with Spike, but Spike, aside from when they're fucking the house down, that she unzips his fly, which I think is pretty pretty clearly what's happening by based on the look on surprise on his face right during that scene um she's not active he seeks her out for all of their sex that's everything we see he's coming to her house he's coming to double meat palace you know um we have a moment um in dead things where she goes up to his crypt and puts her hand on the door uh, she does seek him out and gone but in general like buffy has been kind of a passive character and as i'm making notes in the eponymous buffy the vampire slayer you know show right i find i end up talking about anya and xander and willow and spike you know and dawn yeah more than i talk about buffy and buffy's uh, buffy's movement through her own story and i i always find that interesting when i'm writing all of my notes for an episode and i realize at the end that like oh i haven't said anything about buffy yeah that's a really good observation And I think that you can make the argument that it has something to do with the experience of depression, Mm -hmm. right? Because like a lot of season six is about depression. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people who love season six, that's one of the reasons why a lot of them have had experience with mental illness like this. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really resonates with them. And I think passivity is a big part of how a lot of people experience depression, right? It's yeah. like mm-hmm. being unable to get out of bed, being unable to muster um, the energy and the initiative to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, depression isn't just about being sad. It's about um, yeah. almost like an incapacitation mm-hmm. in a way. And so I don't think it's necessarily an oversight by the writers i think it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a fundamental part of of that experience of depression is that feeling like all of these things are happening to you and that you don't have agency in it Mm -hmm. so it's a feature not a bug i think the argument can be made i'm willing (laughs) to hear counter arguments um (laughs) but yeah Yeah. for me at least that's kind of my take on it and it's hard i think in a visual medium to show Buffy's experience of 
the thing that she says to Xander in this episode, right, mm-hmm. about how hard it is just to be here, yeah. which really speaks to depression. The It is hard just to exist in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, there's not a lot to show with that. I mean, I think it can be done. I think mm-hmm. I think it's been done in film and television, but in a show that is as active as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, I think somewhere it's listed, it might be listed on Hulu as an action comedy, which, okay. Yeah. I've um, never really thought of it like that, but yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's an, it's an action-y show, and Buffy is not particularly active in season six in the way that she has been in previous seasons. Mm-hmm. She's a passive protagonist. And I think does that, while I think that as an expression of, you know, talking about depression, I think absolutely that is, uh, you know, the experience of depression, um, that, that inability to do anything and inability to work up the motivation to want to do anything, you know, um, is, is, you know, an accurate representation. I think that it, it, it does become difficult when you're protagonist becomes passive because then you're losing that kind of like narrative engine that you need to run the show. And so I think a lot of this season is being run on the motivation of others. And that may be part of what makes season six feel a little off sometimes. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Just because Buffy's passivity resonates as an expression mm-hmm. of depression doesn't mean that it makes the narrative work necessarily. Right. It causes a problem with the narrative and kind of makes it makes it flop around a little bit. Um, I, I was delighted to see Anya uh, going after her vengeance. Um, oh, and this woman, you know, this this horrible fat phobic woman for whom I have absolutely no sympathy because fuck you, lady. Um, but when she's like, yeah, I wish. And Anya's just talking right over her. Um, I thought that that was a really fun. Again, Anya's just delightful. I love her. They, I mean, she gets all the best stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> almost yes. always she gets all the best stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can't really say anything here without seeming narcissistic. So, uh... <laughs> well, both Anya's are absolutely delightful. Yeah. Both the one that is here with us today and the one about which we are speaking. Um, okay, so let's move on to somebody who does not have a, a name match in the group. Uh, Xander. Um, Xander, I feel so torn on Xander because have I not been saying, okay, from this point forward, it's good Xander. From this point <laughs> forward, it's good Xander. Um, I struggle right. so much with how much I love Xander because so often and maybe even more often than not, he's such a fucking mug. You know, um, I hate the way he talks to Buffy when she comes to his apartment. I know that he's hurting, but I hate it. She doesn't have to tell him anything about who she's sleeping with. And none of it is any of his fucking business. And if she does tell him, he doesn't have to like it. He's not sleeping with Spike. He just needs to shut up and be there for Buffy. Um, you know, so I all of it, I find really, really irritating. And then, and then, and then <laughs> here's Xander at the end coming to Buffy in her yard. Apologize. Does he actually apologize or do I, am I just giving him credit it's, for apologizing? I'm trying to remember. Like the tone is apology. Apologetic. Like, the tone there mm-hmm. is apology and reconciliation because they do both acknowledge yeah. that the ways in which they were they contribute they, to the situation mm-hmm. yeah the way the ways in which that they were out of alignment in their friendship yeah. um which i really like i actually really like the two of them 
yeah. in this episode. Mm-hmm. That scene where she comes to his apartment is really hard to watch. Um, also, I think it... it I don't it's know. a typical white dude making everything about himself. Yeah. <laughs> when like if you if you really feel that way, like like there's a way to I think express worry about an unhealthy relationship that mm-hmm. centers the person in that relationship. Yes. And that's not mm-hmm. what he is doing at all. Right. It's mm-hmm. all about how it makes him feel. And it's mm-hmm. all a, it's all like pre-victim blamey too in the yeah. You know, Buffy's like, you let Spike fight alongside you. And Xander's like, well, I never forgot what he really is. And this is before, before the rape scene. And I just, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of like pre, I don't know. I don't, I like hesitate to even say it, but it feels like there's a little bit of pre-victim blaming. We're laying victim track, victim blamey track, right? Yeah. It feels a little bit like, well... You, Buffy, forgot who Spike really is, and I, Xander, know the truth about him. Mm-hmm. And how dare you not tell me about... And I'm like, wait, okay, we're, we've suddenly built a closer relationship for Buffy and Xander than I was aware of? Mm-hmm. She, she tells him, you know, my personal life is my personal life, and he's like, it didn't used to be. And I'm like, but when has Xander... Did I just... Am I having yeah. some sort of, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer amnesia? Was he the person that she went to about things and then that stopped? Did I... What, like, Not what am really. I really. I mean, Riley was the one who pulled Xander into Riley and Buffy's yeah. relationship. Not Buffy. You know, yeah. um, it was Lonnie, Riley. Yeah, what's your term for narrative gaslighting again? I think it's narrative gaslighting. I think it's narrative gaslighting. It used to be Scavonian. It used to oh, be yes. Scavonian, Scavonian dissonance. dissonance. That's what but I was thinking But I changed of. it to narrative gaslighting because I think that that's, that's more, it doesn't require an extensive knowledge of Desperate Housewives in order to understand the reference. So. That's right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. It was Scavonian uh, dissonance because we we had that where everybody was pretending like Tom Scavo was the ideal husband when he was a piece of human garbage, you know? Um, so yes, it's uh, now I call it narrative gaslighting because I think that's what got a little more clarity that's right yeah no 100 percent, noelle this is narrative gaslighting yes mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely all right so um we've talked a lot about spike um through this whole thing but one thing that i wanted to touch on um that i really liked about uh what we're going through with him is this moment in which he says what have i done and then follows it up with why didn't i do it and the thing is, is that he could have because his chip doesn't work with regard to Buffy. So it's not the chip stopping him. And of course, it was Buffy stopping him um, in this particular instance. But when he was knocked across the room, he didn't go back after her. Right. And finish mm-hmm. what he had started. Um, and again, I'm not giving him huge credit for that, but I am interested in his question, which isn't just disgust at what he's done, but genuine curiosity about why he feels bad about it. Why did he stop? He is a monster. Like he is forgetting that he is a monster. He is forgetting what he truly is. Um, This is a guy who, you know, raped and murdered across Europe for 150 years with a song in his heart. Like, this is who this guy is very much. And yet, here he is now, changed, not by the chip, not by his soul, but by something else. 
Why didn't I do it? And there's something in that question that I really love about this because it doesn't leave us in this super sympathetic headspace of, oh, poor Spike, he feels just terrible about what he's done. Mm -hmm. He feels terrible about not knowing who he is. Um, and I think that that's such an interesting question to place at this particular juncture. That he's going, he he is going back and forth between, I mean, he said, doesn't he literally say about the chip, it won't let me be a monster and I can't be a man? Right. So he's grappling with, he's grappling with the reality of what has happened, what he's mm -hmm. done to Buffy but also suddenly feeling the weight of not being evil. It's, it, I mean, yeah, it's really interesting. It's not really being as evil as he'd like to be, you know, well, I mean, yeah. As evil as he thinks he should be able to be. Right. It is a really interesting struggle in identity and like, you know, separate from the the rape scene and that storyline and everything that's going on. I like that. I think that's interesting. I think that gives his character some nuance that I really appreciate. So I have a question for you, and I wouldn't necessarily obsess over this word that I mm -hmm. think maybe you didn't put a whole lot of thought into, but because this is the episode that it is. Yes. So you said that Spike murdered and raped his way across Europe for centuries. Do we know that he has committed rape before this moment? Because I feel like if he has or hasn't, that does put the the actions in this episode in a separate light. I never thought of yeah. him as someone who had committed sexual violence before. I assumed he had just been murdering. So I'm wondering, if oh. is that like just a phrase mm -hmm. that you pulled out? I don't out? know. You know what? I have to say, I don't know where the text is. I feel like there is text somewhere on that, but it might have been... I don't know. I don't know. And I may have misspoken. So yes, I know that there's somebody listening who absolutely knows if there was text. I feel like there is a textual acknowledgement that he has done that. I think there was something in one of the stories that he was telling Dawn that gave me the impression when he okay. was telling the story of, of something he had done to a family. I'm not entirely sure. I may be wrong, but I do. I was under that impression, but I might be mistaken. So I'm glad that you brought it up, um, but I'm not really sure. I feel like there is text for that, but I cannot think of what it is off the top of my head right now. Well, this is this is not the same timeline, but when he's telling Buffy about killing slayers mm -hmm. and we see those flashbacks those those murders are there's a hmm okay treading the super murders carefully. are sexual in nature we are presented with them in a sexual they way they are framed in a sexual yeah frame there's a there's a very sexual mat and frame around both mm -hmm. of those murders that's mm -hmm. my immediate you know, light bulb with spike and sexual assault but he was with Drusilla I mean maybe he was monogamous so Dr. Kelly Jones, who was lurking in our Zoom chat, um, <laughs> has just said that uh, in season seven, Spike says to Buffy, do you want to hear what I've done to girls Dawn's age? Ah, uh, yeah. So I, I think, think that's where I got that impression. Okay. And it was something about Dawn. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but, so but still, that's not necessarily actually 
it could be murder, right? It could be murder. It could be murder. It could be. I'm just um, saying on the on the brutality. plus side, if we're optimistic, it could be murder. <laughs> right. If we're right. optimistic, it could be murder. Yes, absolutely. All right. I will absolutely take that correction. People in the audience, go ahead and uh, let me know if there's if there's reason to believe. I do have I have reason to believe that that's not necessarily a line that he would have drawn um, as a vampire running across Europe. But we do not know for sure. I think I'm not sure that it has been explicit explicitly stated um but interesting question and now i have to wonder where i got that impression from um but okay let's move on to a a little light moment of clem can we have a moment of clem because there's so little joy in this episode clem walking in with a bucket full of of hot wings and just wanting to hang out and talk Oh, my God. I love Clem. And I love Clem wanting, like, seeing that Spike is going through something and, like, wanting so much to help. And his little, you know, Spike is is going off about his chip. And uh, Clem says, uh, maybe put, like, a wet rag on it. Like, he's a little total recall (laughs) moment. He's so empathetic. He's he's just trying so hard. He's Um, so sweet. And I just, I don't know. I just love to see Clem. Mm-hmm. I love to see Clem, especially in the context of Spike going through this, yeah. you know, identity crisis about not being a monster mm-hmm. and not being a man. And here's Clem, who yeah. is a demon. Yes. Who's just like a sweet, cuddly demon. I mean, we've talked about this before with season six, right? About, mm-hmm. you know, the the bad guys are just guys and not all the demons are evil. And mm-hmm. hey, there's a thing. So it's like one more little tick in that column of it's not it is not true that demons and vampires are capital e evil across the board there's Mm -hmm. there is space for all kinds of behavior (laughs) among demons and vampires and i just i i love it it's such an interesting addition to this really twisty narrative yeah yeah and i really like that and we're constantly having this discussion we've had it a number of times this season the soul is not the you know arbiter of goodness within a like a being's existence you know and so what is what is it that makes somebody good and what is it that makes somebody not good and that question i don't think is ever explicitly answered um, in Buffy, um, but the the trio and exploring this very particularly human brand of evil, I think, is is an interesting kind of um, a contrast to that. Uh, but Clem is like the demon Tara. It's just every time he shows up, he makes me happy. It's just that you know. So for me, he is the and all and only that way in the way that he affects me. That I get happy whenever I see him. So he reminds me of Tara in that way. Um, but okay, so we're gonna close this out by talking a little bit about the trio. I don't know how much more we have. Have to say about the trio I, I can say that I am so tired of these guys I'm tired of talking about them but we do have a moment in this episode Jonathan finds a way through his weakness to give Buffy the key to taking down Warren in that fight so you know there's that um, it's the beginning of what could be a decent redemption story I don't think we ever get like a, a really fulfilling redemption story about Jonathan um, in this show Um And then we have more internalized homophobia from Andrew, which is uh, very, very jokey. And isn't it really funny, you know, how this guy is in love with Warren, I guess. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that when they're Mm -hmm. being when Andrew and Jonathan are, you know, have been apprehended. Mm -hmm. And Andrew says, 
how could he do this to me? And he's yeah. talking in these, you know, season six, relationship, relationship season. Um, relationship he's season. talking in these like romantic relationship breakup kind of terms mm-hmm. until finally he says, it's like he never really loved hanging out with us. And he like right. drops his voice in this like, he's like doing this higher sort of more. Mm-hmm. You know, hi- higher in his register. It's like he never really loved yeah. hanging out with us. And <laughs> I just, yeah, it's a gay joke. Mm-hmm. And is it ever really textually acknowledged beyond that that Andrew wants Warren? I don't know. I mean, this seems to be the only episode in which it seems that he is in love with specifically Warren. Um, I think we get maybe a little bit of that in season seven when the first dresses up as Warren and revisits Andrew, um, that there is that that sense of loss or something like that. I I don't know, but I'm tired. I don't know. Are you guys tired? I'm tired. Whenever we talk <laughs> about the trio, I'm like, you know what? I'm bored talking about these guys. I don't care anymore. I, I love about Andrew it. in season seven. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. I talked about it last time a little bit, and it's still mm-hmm. present for me here, too, although less so because yeah. we have Andrew chanting, kill her, kill her, as Warren is fighting Buffy. But I feel mm-hmm. interesting feelings about Andrew. Um, mm-hmm. And and maybe it is, maybe it's the queerness, maybe it's something in the performance maybe i, I am feel it too simultaneously I lay it to tom lank's charisma yeah yeah that's well, what yeah. i was gonna say tom lank is amazing so just put it down to that i guess <laughs> yeah but it's interesting to me just to be sitting in this space of like feeling very critical of the trio as you know mm-hmm. antagonists in the buffy verse while also being like Oh, I kind of like Andrew. Like, I kind of like have seeing deep Andrew. Love. It's, yeah. yeah. I have deep love for Andrew. I think I think at this point it comes down to Tom Lank's charisma. I do like the uh, the redemption story we get him through in season seven. I especially love Storyteller. I think Storyteller is, I have so much love at Storyteller that it does become retroactively applied. Oh, agreed. Um, back, all the way back into season six. So, and Tom Lank is, my adoration for Tom Lank is limitless. Um, so I find that his charm, and same thing with Danny Strong too. Like Jonathan is really gross in a lot of ways, but Danny Strong has this charm that I just, whenever I see Jonathan, I love him and I forgive him and all of that. So it's just, I don't know. I, I, I'm not really sure that it's textually justified. Okay. I, I may have something to say here. Yes. Um, Let's see if you buy this. I think that the trio, when it was written, is very prescient right Mm -hmm. like i think it foreshadows a lot of gamergate and all Mm -hmm. of that that like this cute nerdy male misogyny actually has like much deeper and more sinister undertones Mm -hmm. and then and then those undertones can become overtones Mm -hmm. given the right circumstances yeah absolutely Um, and you know in in 2021 I almost feel like, uh, you know, these were like thoughts that I was having in 2015, 2016. Right. Now in 2021, you know, we're kind of revisiting 
Hannah Arendt's concept of the banality of evil mm-hmm. in the context of everything that's that's happened yeah. in the past four years, mm-hmm. you know, I think she was really onto something about how fascist movements yeah. and and like oppressive movements, they take a lot of types, right? Like there's mm-hmm. not everyone can be Hitler, not everyone mm-hmm. is Warren. Mm-hmm. In order for great evil to be perpetrated, it takes the Jonathans, the yes. Andrews, yeah. the mm-hmm. the people who make sure that the trains run on time, the people mm-hmm. who just, you know, report that their neighbor has someone hiding in the basement, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it takes everything. And so, like I understand why people why that grates on them, why having sympathy for Andrew and Jonathan when they contribute to this great evil mm-hmm. um, is so gross. And, yeah. and like, it is gross. But to mm-hmm. me, again, I think that's a feature, not a bug. Because yeah. mm-hmm. that, absolutely. Um, because that's how these things actually work, you know? And, like, I'm sure of all of the people that, you know, stormed the Capitol or, you know, yeah. went to Trump rallies. Some of them do have redeeming qualities, and I'm sure some of them are nice and adorable and cute to other people in their life. That doesn't make them good people. And, like, that's something right. that we have to grapple with, right? I mean, I think that's something that so many white people at least have been grappling with over the past four years as people have kind of joined in mm-hmm. the the Trump cult and turned into little fascists is that, yeah. you know, the people that we love and have affection for um, are actually, you know, deep down really problematic and easily led into evil and yeah. and perpetuate great acts of evil and enable great acts of evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no, sorry definitely. to bring up politics. I no, know that like okay. <laughs> a lot of people probably are using this as an escapism, but like it's hard not yeah. to see it there. You know? No, I think there's definitely absolutely a connection there. And um and I think that that's a it's a point well taken, definitely. Um and, and that's one of the things too, is that like in the context of Buffy, when I look at Jonathan, and Jonathan has done some truly, truly horrible things that we have, we have talked about throughout the run. Um, there is something about Jonathan that for, uh, for reasons I cannot quite explain, I just have like a love for him. And I think a lot of it has to do with his vulnerability for the fact that he did help Buffy, you know, for the fact that he does see what's wrong, that when Katrina got hurt, it turned around for him. That's when he had that realization that there is some redemption in that, although we don't get a full redemption arc um, for Jonathan. Andrew, we get a very slow redemption arc through mm-hmm. uh, through season seven. Um, and uh, and I do have um, have definite affection for Andrew. And, and when I look at them and I think about, you know, that they are exactly the thing that greases the skids of fascism, you know, and all of that, that, um, that make that kind of evil possible. Uh, the, the helpers, the evil little helpers, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that having that affection for them is something that I do question in myself about like, where is this coming from and why, um, and holding them accountability while uh, holding them accountable while having that affection. How, how do you do that? You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of there's a lot of really tough questions in that. Definitely. 
All right. So moving forward, Noel, what are you wearing? Okay. I have a what are you wearing question. Yes. Is Tara's blue sweater in the final scene the one Willow was going to wear to meet Buffy at the hospital in the body? Oh. It fits the description. Oh. And, and I, we never really get to see it because Anya just pulls it out of the papazon and throws it in the... Yeah. yeah. Oh, but, I don't know, but now I'm sadder. I know. And I kind oh. of I, I kind of want a headcanon that it is, Ooh, but only yeah. because of bigger story reasons. Yeah. I don't know. Oh. Such a bummer. Such oh, a bummer. Okay. It's it is so a bummer. good. I mean, and mm-hmm. you can imagine that even if it is not physically the same costume prop. Mm-hmm. It could be an intentional homage, right? Like maybe yeah. they got rid of that specific sweater, but they chose one that was similar enough to and make the reference. And she dies in what was Joyce's bedroom. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. 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 Oh God. Yeah, that hurts, doesn't it? It gets it's you rough. right in the gut. Gets you right in the gut. We're going to be talking a lot about Tara next episode. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, oh God, it's awful. It's awful. All right. So before we close up what has been a very, very challenging episode of Still Pretty, Noelle, what's your favorite part? It is Dawn mm-hmm. ecstatic to see Tara and Willow together again. I'm Absolutely. totally not here. You guys do whatever you want. Like, oh, baby. <laughs> go downstairs and watch TV really loud. I love that. It's I so love great. love it. What about you, Lonnie? What's your favorite part? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I'm with I just what could possibly be a better part than Dawn's incredible squeeing glee at Tara and Willow being together, being back together, which is, you know, reflected in me. I feel that squeeing glee that they're back together. So Anya, what about you? Uh, Complete consensus on this point, (laughs) I think. I I love this moment. And I'm actually so mad that it's not one of the like, easily searchable gifts that comes up on Twitter. Yeah. Because I, I like I constantly want to use this as a reaction gif and it's mm-hmm. like really hard to find. To find it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very, very nice. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag still pretty. Anya, would you like to tell people where they can get in touch with you? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at strangely literal. That's strangely and then L-I-T-E-R-L because character limits. <laughs> um, if you want to um, find um, my show Hallowed Ground Storycast, which is the one that Lonnie guested on, you can find that at HG Storycast. Um, and if you are for some reason starved for Buffy content, um, the first two episodes of that show are um, all about Buffy. So we did one episode covering seasons one through four, and then another episode covering seasons five through seven. All right. So you guys can find that. Just go out to the podcast uh, place of choice and look for Hallow Ground Storycast. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our February producers. Stephania, Shelly, Rose, Jonathan, Alice, Kristen, Sarah, Christina, Erica, and Abigail. And this week's special message for our power producers... Sometimes intimate, sweaty relations with the wrong person just seems like a good idea at the time. To find out how you, too, can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. 
Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or fly off in a jetpack and leave Andrew and Jonathan to rot. All right. Thank you so much, Anya, for spending time with us here today. It was so great to have you. We will be back next time with Villains, the 20th episode of season six. Until then, so the birds are flying again, eh? Ain't love grand. <laughs> <laughs>